Jesse, I'm still hurting thinking about last week's hero. What's the story this week? When a young executive is suspected of murdering his girlfriend in a New York City high-rise hotel, the cops must dig into whether it could have possibly been a tragic accident as he claims. However, while searching for the truth, they discover something evil lurking in his family tree. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Hey, Andy. Hey, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about love gone fatally wrong, whether it's salacious scandals, murder for insurance plots, that's a lot of them, or multi-generational killers. They love that life insurance policy, don't they? <laughs> they really do. I'm reading like another one for a future episode and I'm like, well, we're back on the insurance, aren't we? <laughs> it's just an easy, it's an easy one. <laughs> You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. And as always, if you enjoy this show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app and help new people discover the show. We also love hearing what you guys think via reviews or DMs. So please let us know what you're thinking and loving right now. Okay, Andy. And this is that was very Delilah. I don't know if any of you guys like listened to Delilah in the 90s. It was like a syndicated radio show. And she's like, who are you loving tonight? And like, it was just awesome. And then there was another country radio station that would have um, a show. And I don't know if that was syndicated or if it was local, but it was called Crying, Loving or Leaving. And the people would call in. And they would have to say what they were doing and then like dedicate a song to somebody. Wow. I know. Of course, this is where I think my love obsession started because I basically listened to B95.5, which was like soft rock with Delilah, or I listened to country music channel and they'd be like, tonight I'm crying because my baby left me. And then they'd get into the story and she'd be like, well, I cheated on him with his cousin, but... <laughs> I was like, oh, boo. All right. And I guess that's where I also got being real nosy about people's relationships. There we from. go. There we go. There's the actual. There's the actual truth. <laughs> okay. So we are very close to the end of our maternity episodes. I'm sure you guys are sick of us talking about it, but we are second to last. Andy is full as a tick with a baby right now. <laughs> Oh my God, gross. <laughs> She's going to be the first one to pop? Maybe. Probably. Who knows? Well, who knows? It's neck and neck right now, but you're technically a week ahead of me. So we'll see. Yeah. Yep. So <laughs> I am such a copycat. I think I was trying first. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. But. Yeah, just so you guys know where our bodies and minds are over just the next two episodes. And then you will be hearing us fresh, fresh, fresh. Um, okay, Andy. Well, fresh speaking. Barely. <laughs> fresh and half dead. But freshly in love with our new edition. Okay, so this week, speaking of motherhood, 
is a story within a story. And the middle story, the beyond meat in our murder sandwich always is about a mother. Out. Even if it's meat or beyond meat, it's just <laughs> Even if it's gross. beyond meat. <laughs> a murder sandwich. It's a murder sandwich and the mom is the murder meat. And this is what happens when you raise your children as a murderer. Maybe they become one too. Oh God, okay. <laughs> okay, I'm going to just jump right into the story then. Now that I have completely ruined the surprise for everyone. But don't worry, there's some fun things along the way that you don't know. And I'm pretty sure that this story is something that a lot of people don't know about. Um, I found it because uh, the true crime book was actually free on Audible. So if you guys have Audible Premium, check it out. The book was called Like Mother, Like Son by William Flanagan. And that is where I got the majority of my information today. All right. The Grand Hyatt in Manhattan is a mainstay of New York situated directly above Grand Central Station. It's the perfect place to conduct business before or after hopping a train, as well as one of the first sites to greet visitors as they stumble into the vast concrete jungle for the very first time. But on April 28th, 1993, while people were checking in far below, a beautiful young woman named Marie Danielle was being forcibly checked out on a permanent basis. When police received a call from a notable attorney who famously represented mobsters that they would find a young woman's corpse in room 3431 of the Grand Hyatt, they immediately raced to the hotel to begin processing the scene. All they knew was that if attorney James LaRosa was involved, there'd be a trial, which meant they needed this search to go by the book. Upon entering the room, police found a young woman's body on the floor between the king-size bed and the room service table. Though the young brunette's face was swollen and discolored, it was clear she had been a beauty. Now, with the life cruelly snuffed out of her, she lay on her back, her head tilted to the left side, clad only in her bra, panties, and an opened peach-colored blouse. Her black skirt, belt, jacket, and shoes were scattered a few feet away. At her feet were rolled up at the top pantyhose. The bed cover hadn't been touched, though remains of two lunges were left on the table. On a dresser top, there was an unopened box of condoms and a gift box with opened wrapping. They would find a pearl bracelet on the floor that fit in the gift box. The police certainly didn't have to work too hard to discover who the leading suspect was. At the scene was a briefcase that belonged to 35-year-old Jed Ardito that contained a treasure trove of information about him. Copies of his birth and marriage certificates, his passport, other papers and official forms, as well as what looked like a photograph of him with the murder victim with her face ominously scratched out. Ooh, that's creepy. It's creepy as hell. And also, could this guy have, like, left any more information on how to find him? <laughs> He's like, here's all of my official documents. <laughs> here's everything you need to know. All he needed to leave them was, like, a map to his house. <laughs> you know what, though? He, maybe this is, like, maybe he got a new face. Is this face off? He's being framed? 
you know, of course you bring excuse, the Nick Cage, any excuse to reference face did you, off. Did you, did I send you the meme of John Travolta walking down the street and somebody wrote, it's nice to see Nick Cage wearing a mask during coronavirus. No. Yeah, it's real like insider baseball if you guys listen to the show religiously and know that Andy's a a Nick Cage fan. But yeah, it's too good. Okay, we're gonna put So you don't you don't know. Like he could have he could have undergone the same surgery that Nick Cage and John Travolta went through. I'm I'm so sure that's it. Andy, you just solved the crime. He was totally set up. You're welcome. There's no need to listen anymore. (laughs) Nice. The podcast is over. In conclusion, <laughs> in conclusion, when getting a face swap, make sure to have a handy briefcase full of all of your face swappies face. information. <laughs> this is very, muy importante. Muy importante. You're welcome. <laughs> oh my God. Um. Okay. So yeah, I don't, I don't think that's what was going on here. It's just I have a, a sneaking suspicion that that's the face-off theory. One can only not help. happening here. Yeah, that was a, that was a good guess, but no Thanks. dice. Okay. <laughs> Though the scene would later raise important questions, the question of who the guilty party was was not one of them. The police now needed to track Jed Ardito down, and then they would discover a charming devil with a history of drama and violence, as well as a family tradition of murder. Welcome to Evil Runs in the Family, a tale of two diabolically selfish people in the same family who believed their lovers were disposable. I went like full dayline with this one. Evil Runs in the Family. I don't know why you don't every episode. (laughs) <laughs> well, a lot of times I don't know what I'm going to name the episode until the end. Um, but yeah, I, I already called this one. Because I, I couldn't call it like Mother Like Son because that's the name of the book. Oh, it's a good, that's a good title. That's a good title, right? Yeah. They, they, did so, that. they did. So alternate title would have been like Mother Like Son. Or it could have been like the apple doesn't fall far from the evil tree. But I think that's a little long. <laughs> all right all right the police quickly identified the victim marie danielle a smart and ambitious 24 year old woman who had been tragically romantically linked to her killer only weeks earlier on february 18th marie's neighbor had called 911 after hearing marie screaming and pleading for her life that's today Oh my gosh, I keep doing this. Yes. Oh my gosh, I don't do it on purpose. In fact, and we were supposed to record this episode a week ago, remember? Yeah, and yesterday. This is And fate. yesterday. This is fate. This is so weird. I keep accidentally doing this. Oh my gosh. Yep. Yeah, so it was it was uh 1993. So it was like, what, like 18 years ago? Well, the way you were talking about it, I thought it was going to be like the 20s or 30s. Not 18. <laughs> what am I talking about? Like 38 years ago. Wait, that's also not right. What? I can't do math. <laughs> Guys, I'd like to blame the pregnancy on this, but it's not. I just can never do math. I'm a good storyteller, but like as far as math comes, I'm turning bright red right now. Anyways, it's the same fucking day a fuck ton years ago, okay? <laughs> wow. 
<laughs> Can't wait to do the next one. It's going to be real prime. prime this, is, uh, and this is why I think like as much as you guys are probably sick of hearing about our pregnancies and God knows we're sick of being pregnant. Um, we have to give you a warning label because Disclaimer. we are nine months pregnant and we are More. almost done. More. We are nine plus. Woof. Okay. Woof. 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 So yes. And speaking of woof, this is really bad. So on February 18th, Marie's neighbor had called 911 after hearing Marie screaming late at night. So it was like a a couple that was home and the neighbor had come to Marie's aid and threatened Jed because Jed was actually physically strangling her. She had tried to escape her apartment and run out and he had caught her in the lobby and was choking her publicly in the lobby of the apartment building. And the the male of the couple came out and was like, took a baseball bat and he's like, you better get away from her, buddy. And meanwhile, the female in the couple called 911. And in the, the 911 call, you can hear Marie in the background, like screaming and crying. Oh my God. Yep. So he obviously ran away after confronted with the neighbors. And when police responded to the attempted murder, Marie refused to press charges. Yeah, of course. It's like, I know it happens all the time. And she did admit that it wasn't the first time he had assaulted her. Of course, this would sadly become, you know, a decision that would cost her her life. And, you know, to no fault of her own, you know, she had been victimized for a very, very long time by this guy. So it was clear at this point to the police in the guest room at the Grand Hyatt that Jed had finished what he had started because Marie had been strangled to death. Ooh. Yeah. While the authorities began a manhunt to find Jed Ardito, they also performed the grim task of notifying Marie's family of the atrocious crime that had been committed. Marie was born and grew up in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, to a large and loving Sicilian family with lots of siblings and cousins. She was known as bright, vivacious, and funny, and she was always extremely goal-oriented and really smart. Though there was no money for college, Marie started working at a temp agency and quickly worked her way up the ranks into management. By the time she was only 19 and still in braces, she was so valuable to a certain temp temp agency Mm -hmm. that Jed Ardito, who ran a competing one, actually poached her. No way. Uh Uh-huh. But of course... She was beautiful and young and really talented at her job. And he decided that he had to have her for himself. Very Fifty Shades. Mm-hmm. He's like the partner and like the top salesman at the firm. Mm-hmm. So Jed, despite being married and Marie's boss, quickly became obsessed with her. After embarking on an affair, Jed eventually proposed marriage on Marie's 22nd birthday, which, this is skeezy, also happened to be his fifth anniversary like of his wedding with his wife. Ew. He proposed mm. to her on the same day? He proposed to Marie on the fifth anniversary of his wedding. That's disgusting. The date. Yeah, it's gross. The Danielle family welcomed Jed with open arms. He was handsome, smart, charming, successful, and best of all, also Sicilian. 
Both Marie and Jed hid the fact that their relationship had started while Jed was still married, knowing that that would, fact would obviously go over like a lead balloon with her Italian conservative parents, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So they didn't know. So they liked him, of course. They didn't care that he was like her boss. They were just like, oh, that's great. They're just like a power couple, you know? So the Daniels actually really liked Jed at the beginning and they were really excited about the proposal, but they were very traditional and they told the couple they would have to wait a year because Marie's sister was already engaged and it was like the older sister. Yeah. And so she was going to get married first. Plus they also had to pay for that wedding because they were also traditional in that way. Yeah. So it's like yep, gave yep, them yep. a little time to save more money. Um, so by the time that it would have been Marie and Jed's turn, they did not make it to the altar because within six months of the proposal, Jed met an Austrian beauty who is pseudonymed in this. So I don't know her real name, um, but she's called Petra in the book while working out at the YMCA. Ew. I don't know. That sounds like a very 90s way to meet, I guess, in Manhattan. No, it is. But like, that's just so gross. You like have to worry about your fiance going to the gym to meet someone else because he's that big of a skis bag. This guy is a huge skis bag. And I think he has a lot of, you'll see why later, but he definitely has mommy issues. And I think that's why he has issues with women and issues with his own worthiness, you know? And that causes him to cheat because he's always looking for more people to give him attention and love. <sighs> I mean, not to give him an excuse, but he also no. has kind of a crappy upbringing. Um, so the gorgeous and regal blonde came from a very wealthy and well-to-do family. And she was actually visiting in a diplomatic capacity. It was like a very high-end family. So Jed swept her off her feet and the two were instantly inseparable. Within months of meeting, Jed dumped Marie and married Petra. Wow. Like this guy also clearly has relationship issues because he met Marie at work, which is totally not allowed when he's the boss. So there's already a power dynamic there that's totally fucked. Yeah. And she's 19. So she's really young and he's cheating on his wife with her and then immediately proposes to her while still technically married. And then as soon as his divorce is finalized, marries this third woman that he met while cheating on his fiance. Yeah, he's gross. Yeah. And also the marriage sounds, well, not the marriage. They weren't married very long, but the wedding sounds wild. So they went back to her home country to get married and he ended up marrying her in this elaborate, crazy fairy tale wedding outside of Salzburg in the Austrian Alps. It was like crazy lavish. According to William Flanagan, Petra wore a jeweled tiara that had been in her mother's family for generations, like crown jewel shit. And the celebrations included a dress ball where all the men dressed like Mozart, complete with powdered wigs and fake molds and danced the night away. That's like <laughs> so crazy. It's like so extra for the fact that they'd only known each other for a few months and her parents put on this like legit ball for them. Like Marie Antoinette ball with like- Uh-huh, exactly. With powdered wigs and fancy dress it's and- so white. <laughs> yes, it is. It really is. Like, it's the whitest. <laughs> come marry me in Austria and we can dance <laughs> around like old white people. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what it was. So 
<laughs> if the wedding was a dream, the marriage was a freaking nightmare. Jed immediately regretted leaving Marie and he was back courting her within days of the wedding, like as soon as they got back in New York City. So fucked up. Ugh. The new marriage fell apart in a matter of months with Petra returning to Austria and Jed free to pursue lovely Marie again. This time around, Marie wasn't so sure she wanted to be with the man who had caused her so much heartbreak. Yeah, you know, I think she was like getting older. She was maturing. She was like, this is not healthy. And she was realizing that, you know. So the two engaged in kind of an on again, off again relationship. And it like only served to excite Jed more that she was like pulling away because she'd always been so willing and so loving towards him. So now he was like hell bent on like wooing her back and he would give her jewelry and he would like, you know, any of her uh, family members or friends who needed a job, he'd find jobs for them. And he was trying to be like Mr. Big Shot connected guy, you know? And obviously he had to try to get into her Sicilian family's good graces again because they all knew what he did. Yep. Which seems impossible. (laughs) Yeah, it's a pretty hard sell after you leave your fiancé to get married in Austria. Um, Yeah. So all of her like gut instincts and her friends and family were like, okay, this is time to stop the madness. And after the events of February 18th, when Jed attacked her, which like I said, wasn't for the first time according to her police statements, she felt finally more resolved than ever to end this abusive roller coaster romance. Well, days before Jed was telling his mentor and partner in the company that he wanted to marry Marie and he would convince her one way or another, Marie was telling her best friend on the same day of the killing that she was finally ending things for good. Oh, uh-oh. Mm-hmm. So the two often met at the Grand Hyatt as it was close to Jed's office and easy for him to sneak away to. And they had frequently used the hotel for sexual dalliances during Jed's marriages. But also it was kind of just a good private place to talk and order up room service. And it certainly didn't help that he, it certainly didn't hurt that he was kind of a skis. And so when they would like go away to do these like, you know, hotel room afternoons he would put the entire thing on the company and say he was like booking a new recruits hotel room or he was entertaining a client so that he didn't even have to pay for anything himself not surprising at all no it's such typical dirt bag (laughs) with an amex behavior (laughs) oh my god what a loser with an expense account yeah Um, So yeah, so she didn't think like anything was weird about the fact that they were meeting for lunch in a hotel room. It does not necessarily mean that she was going there for sex or anything. It just was something that they did quite often. Based on testimony of friends and family of both parties, it seemed most likely that Jed had intended to woo Marie back with the gift of the pearl bracelet, that the two had eaten lunch, and then Marie revealed her intention to break off the relationship permanently which caused Jed to fly into a rage and kill her. Obviously, he already had anger issues and he had demonstrated that, you know, choking her was not off the table, clearly, you know? It's pastime of his, I guess. It's a, yeah, it's a a hobby of his, apparently. Psycho. Ardito's attorney had claimed that the murder had occurred as the result of an accident. He said Marie had died while she and Jed were partaking in, quote, rough sex you are lying and 
Uh-uh. An 80s and 90s euphemism for sex that involved breath play, a.k.a. sexual asphyxiation. So the police were like, okay, that's fucking bullshit. And here's why. Number one, the medical examiner could find no evidence that a sexual act had taken place. No seminal fluid or female secretions except for a trace amount of thick white mucus was found in Marie's vagina. Okay. Two, the condoms were still in the sealed box. So he hadn't used one if he did. And three, the scene appeared to be staged. The female investigator at the scene noticed that the way her pantyhose were pulled down was like clearly like after the fact somebody had pulled them down. It wasn't how a like a woman would undo, like take off her pantyhose. Maybe he should have like, done a better job of staging then with the condoms. Exactly. Just- At least take one out of the box or something. So yeah, additionally, her panties remained on which seems strange if the two were engaging in intercourse like Ardito's lawyer claimed. And furthermore, the preppy killer murder of Jennifer Levin by Robert Chambers had occurred less than a decade before in New York City, and it had received national media attention. Basically, this rich scumbag guy killed a girl he was dating in Central Park by strangulation, and he was the first person who claimed that it occurred during rough sex. And the guy had basically gotten off with a plea for manslaughter. He did serve some time, but it was like minute. It was like not fair. Yeah. So it's possible that after killing her, he was like, oh man, that guy got off by saying it was just rough sex. We're in a hotel room. If I make it look like we had sex, then I have a plausible defense, you know? So, well, we don't know exactly what happened in that hotel room that caused Marie's death. We do know that instead of immediately calling for medical attention or even just like calling down to the desk clerk, Jed Ordito instead called famous mafia defense attorney James LaRosa. Jed knew LaRosa's sons from his alma mater, Sarah Lawrence College, and for a while he had been Timmy LaRosa's roommate. So he was connected. Directly after leaving the Grand Hyatt, where he had just left his supposedly beloved's corpse, Jed went to LaRosa's office at 41 Madison Ave. LaRosa gave Jed some counsel and then informed the district attorney that the police would be able to find a body at the Hyatt. Jed knew he had left his briefcase full of breadcrumbs at the hotel and and fancied one more night of freedom. So instead of going home where the police could find him, He went to a close platonic girlfriend's and spent the night. So Denise Marshall is this friend. She was a business contact of his who had eventually like through the six years that they knew each other became like actually really close friends. Never hooked up. They, she said, claimed up and down. It had never been sexual. Like she was like a staffing manager for like a major corporate law firm. So she gave him a ton of business and they had developed like a deep bond. She claimed that they never hooked up. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, so she had in that six years, of course, witnessed all of his problems with Marie and she had actually pleaded with Jed in the past to leave her alone, even offering to help fund a new temp agency venture in California that he would run that would essentially send him to California to separate the two lovers because she knew how bad and toxic their relationship was. Okay. Which he refused to because he felt like, you know, Mr. New York big shot, you know, and he was like, why would I give up my connections here, you know? 
Mm-hmm. Jed asked Denise if he could spend the night at her place, which I guess was like a normal thing that they did. So she didn't think it was weird at all. And she said yes. And he came over. But what was weird was that when he immediately got there, he showered, changed his clothes and immediately took the clothes he had been wearing to the cleaners. Yeah, because he just murdered someone. Because he just, that's freaking weird. That would be weird if somebody came to my house and was like, I just need to immediately change my clothes. And where's your closest dry cleaners? I either like saw something or read something or you told me a story about something where I think you told me this story about these kids that like go and like take off their clothes somewhere because they're bloody. What? No, no. Maybe I maybe I read that somewhere else. I you must have read it or seen it. But what happened to the kids? Wait, what? Did they kill someone? Yeah. And then they like went to their friend's house, and their friend didn't know, but like their clothes were like covered in blood. Oh, oh my gosh! This was our second episode. Remember the Texas Cadet yeah. murder? Yeah, 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 yeah. yes, okay, yes, I did tell I was, you that one. I was like, it's rumor back in there. Uh huh. Like- it was. Yeah, it was episode number two. Yeah, it was that was the day after we recorded that episode. We found out we were both yeah. pregnant. Crazy. Yeah. So this is episode 40. So that was 38 episodes ago. Look, I did that math. <laughs> Not gonna give myself a gold star for that one. No. No, like no yellow gold. star. <laughs> like almost gold, um, but not, you know? Yeah, no, I don't even deserve that. Just make it like orange. Yes. So anyways, that was uh, episode two. So go back and listen to that one. Super tragic. Um, Yes. So after he went to the dry cleaners, uh, they ended up going to Blockbuster. You know, we're in the 90s now. Throwback. (laughs) Shout out. A shout out for Blockbuster. They rented a movie and then they ordered up some Chinese food. But the other thing that like makes me think that he definitely didn't accidentally kill her is that a, he's acting all sorts of suspicious. But B, if this is really a good friend of his and he's spending the night with her, wouldn't he be like, hey, Denise, I like really screwed up. I'm scared to death. Like something happened. We were having weird sex and she got hurt and now I'm freaked out. He didn't say anything to her about yeah. it. He was or like pretending like everything was normal. Or a medic if you yeah. actually cared. No, this guy's a sociopath. He like literally just killed his girlfriend and then went to go eat some fucking Chinese food. Yes, it's insane. Like you're a psycho. So- Yeah, she had no idea. It seemed like a totally normal night, you know, except for the fact that the guy in her apartment just killed his girlfriend. Yeah, no thanks. So the next morning, she left him in her apartment and she left for work and she picked up the New York Post to read on the subway and was completely shocked to find out that her dear friend and the man who was at her apartment as she was reading this newspaper article was wanted in connection to Marie's murder. So she's like, Whoa. can you imagine how, like you're on your morning commute, on your train. You're just like doing Sudoku, you know? <laughs> yes. And then you look over and there's a picture of the guy who's couch surfing because he killed somebody the day before and yeah. just spend the night with you. I would throw up. Yeah, I would. I wrote down like I would be sick to my stomach. Yeah, I would vomit everywhere, like projectile, <laughs> which wouldn't be weird for a New York City subway. So you'd fit right in. <laughs> 
So she called Eric Goldstein and that's Jed's boss and partner. And he was like, yeah, they're looking for Jed. This happened. And I guess Jed had like called Was she like, Eric. he's at my house? Yeah. So she's freaking out. She's okay. like, and she's like, like, Eric, this isn't real, right? This is not Jed. And he's like, no, apparently Jed had called him and was like, an accident happened. I think Marie's dead. And like, then hung up on him. So like, Eric, like told the police that, but he like, didn't know where Jed was. And she's like, and he's, she's like, I know where Jed is. He's at my house. Oh, <laughs> Yeah. So Eric was like, okay, go to your office. I'm calling the police right now. I'm having the police go to your office to meet you there. Like talk to the police and give them your keys and like have them go find Jed. So that's exactly smart, smart, what smart. she did. Cool. Yeah. So she didn't like tip Jed off or anything. The police came, they got her keys and then they got to enter the apartment and surprise him. Cool. So yeah. So Denise was like disgusted. She felt horrified. She also felt like very betrayed because now she was like embroiled in this. Yeah. You're like, we were just sharing like sesame chicken last night, but you killed someone. <laughs> yeah it's super super messed up they like were watching like what came out in 93 like fucking basic instinct or something yeah. like we rented basic instinct at blockbuster and got chinese but you like just <laughs> murdered my friend like teenage mutant ninja turtles the live action movie oh there's definitely some sort of nick cage movie that came out that year you know it for sure for sure <laughs> <laughs> so yeah pretty soon like everybody is playing this out in the media um so james la rosa when asked to comment like immediately goes on the offensive and he's like no they're intimate partners it was like an accident while they were having sex like he's immediately telling the media like this is not a murder this is not what you think it was and the district attorney, Harvey Rosen's like, oh, really? Because I'm going to make sure the press knows that there was a 911 call that had been made and that you can hear the man assaulting Marie in the background. So tell me again how this is an accident. So they're like playing this out in the media right now. Meanwhile, Jed had been taken into custody. And while he awaited trial, authorities dug into his past to see what else they could unearth about the smooth talking lady killer, literally. Smooth lady killer. <laughs> smooth lady killer. You better keep that Shade. In. I love it. That's also 90s, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's very, very on point for this episode, Andy. Brava. Maybe that should be the title. Smooth lady killer. Yeah, no, don't let me sing. Just you keep singing. Don't let me sing it. Anyway, so yeah, they dug into his past, which I think is as good a time as any for us to do the same thing. So let's talk about Jed. You're such a good talk girl. about smooth. That was a smooth transition. That was real fucking smooth. <laughs> so Gerald Victor Ordito was born January 23rd, 1959 in Flushing, Queens. He had one older sister named Dina, um, and he was named for his father, Gerald, who was a businessman, and for his mother's middle name. And her name was Frances Victoria, but she went by Vicky. When Jed was only a toddler, his mother gave birth to a third child, a son named also Victor. <laughs> so, yeah, so his middle name's Victor, his mother's name is Vicky, and she named her third child Victor. A lot of Victors. Tragically, while she was out on a walk with Jed and little Victor, 
the stroller somehow tipped over. So all of your postpartum anxiety nightmares. Yes. Like I am having, it's, it's really horrifying to think about this. I brought it up and Nathaniel's like, I really hate your job sometimes. Like, why are we talking about this? I'm like, because the baby spilled out and hit his head. And also when Alden was like four months old, remember I told you like, when we were in the airport, like Nathaniel was like shoving a suitcase like under the stroller and she fell out of the stroller. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it was so traumatic but and she scary. she was totally fine. She was totally fine. She didn't even course. have a mark. She didn't even have a mark. She was like totally fine. She was like, can I please bre- breastfeed now? You know? Yeah. Um, But it was like really scary and everything's yeah. scary when you have a baby. And so in this circumstance, like somehow the stroller got like, like connected with a rock or something, it tipped over and the baby like fell out and fell right on the still soft spot on the top of his head. Well, the blow proved fatal and he was dead within 24 hours. That's the baby. Horrible. Isn't this like your absolute worst nightmare? Yeah. That's why you got to keep them strapped into the strollers. I learned my lesson. Yeah, no kidding. I know, I know. It was really, we had just gone through immigration and I had to to hold her up so the guy could see her little face with the passport photo. And instead of strapping her back in, I just like put her back in the stroller like a dummy. Never forget myself. She's totally fine, guys. She's two now. She's like ahead of all of her milestones. Like, don't worry about my child. She's okay. Oh my God, but it was so stressful. Um, Yes. So an acquaintance would later recall that after the death of Victor, of course, Vicky was never the same. I mean, this is this is what this friend said is this is exactly when all of her problems began. And I can definitely understand that. And Jed was deeply affected as well because he was like two, two and a half when this happened, I think. Yeah, so he like remembered. It was like his first memory. Yeah. This like implant, imprinted in his brain as the first memory he can remember was his brother's tragic death. And, you know, of course, all toddlers are a little jealous of their siblings of just being there. So he at some point like wished his brother wasn't there so he could get more attention. And then all of a sudden, boom, he's dead. So he had a lot of weird stuff with this, you know. Yeah. In 1966, the Ardito family moved to Bayside, Queens, where Vicky took up the unusual pastime of drag racing. Okay. She was now 29 and the mother of three once more after the birth of baby boy Ricky in 1962. She felt trapped by motherhood and Gerald, her husband, was seldom home. And though he was becoming more and more financially successful, he had a specialty packaging business. He overindulged in the drink and he cheated constantly. So this is like the 60s. So we're talking mad men. We're talking about like good fellas, you know, like those guys aren't expected to be home and they're not expected to be good fathers or husbands. A school friend of his described Gerald as a philanderer and sociopath. I'm like, if that's his friend saying that, what would his enemy say? Literally. <laughs> yeah. So with her husband constantly at work or chasing skirt, Vicky began street racing. It became the focus of her life and she actually became really good at it. So this is from uh, William Flanagan's book, Like Mother, Like Son. He said that she'd take on anyone and usually won. She thrilled at beating men at their own game. Drag racing didn't require size or brute strength. It called for guts, judgment, and coordination. 
It also called for a good mechanic. Gerald acquiesced to Vicky's pleas and leased a Sinclair gas station for her so she had a place to maintain her 1967 black Corvette while also making a buck. She and her black Corvette soon became a legend at the National Speedway in neighboring Nassau County. She won scores of trophies, lots of prize money, and was recognized as the best drag racer in her stock class. I mean, she was legit. So she also attracted a slew of admirers. And though she had given birth four times, Vicky kept her shape very lean. And she always took time to like do up her face and makeup. She turned a lot of heads at the track. This is what William Flanagan says. So forgive me because it sounds very outdated. She was a grease monkey's dream, a foxy broad who could really drive, who had a rich and different old man and even her own gas station. Oh, my God. Grease monkey's dream of foxy broad. So at her gas station or at her house, there was always a few young men who flirted with Vicky and made her feel good. And for Vicky, summer was the best of times for her. School was out and the kids were shipped off to camp for like the whole summer. Yeah. Um, so she could do whatever she wanted and just like pretend to be young again. Yeah, escapism. In 1972, Gerald enjoyed even greater monetary success and moved the family to Long Island. It should have been an amazing time for the Ardito family, but instead it spelled the beginning of the end. The family had another child, a little girl named Tony, but Vicky remained as checked out of the family as ever. And I mean, to her credit, her husband's really checked out. So these kids have parents that don't give a crap about them. Also, that's cute that she named her daughter Tony. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, she, despite having a new baby, was still not into being a mom. She was also consumed with a new hobby. She was kind of getting over drag racing. Her new hobby, can you guess what it no, was? what is it? Raising and training chimpanzees. Yeah, I was going to say like axe throwing or something, but... No, the chimpanzees get me. <laughs> like what? I, I was like, you was, you're never going to get this. Uh, if you guessed raising and training chimpanzees, you actually would be a mind reader. <laughs> the first mail order ape to reside in the fashionable old Westbury area of Long Island, she named Tough Guy. The kids were less than thrilled. It was difficult enough to get their mother's attention without having to compete with a wild ape running around the house. And this was no cuddly little monkey from a TV cartoon show, but a scary, demanding animal who got more of their mother's time than the kids did. I mean, this is like the chimpanzees that rip people's face off. Speaking oh, of face off. God. <laughs> Maybe this is why he needed to do face off. <laughs> okay, this is a bad running gag. Tough guy soon got his own sister and brother, wise guy and tough girl. Breakfast at the Ardito household was literally like feeding time at the zoo with three chimps and four kids running around trying to get fed. Her idea was to put the chimps to work, making TV and movie appearances, showing up for mall openings, school events and the like. Tough guy became a minor celebrity and even had a little fan club. For Vicky, who always craved the spotlight, it was kind of a bizarre way of getting into show business. The kids learned to take a back seat to the chimps. Vicky wasn't above some pretty lame publicity stunts to get work for the chimps. She wanted to make them stars and big earners. She had always wanted to have an independent income, and she thought that the chimps were going to be her ticket. Oh, my God. I mean, we have some crazy 
People are now doing the MLMs. They all have their side hustles. But her side hustle was chimpanzees. Girl. Girl. (laughs) So she hired a public relations man to get exposure for her apes. And one day she went to his office with one of the chimps and one of her kids. Arriving in a chauffeured limo, after some publicity shots, they decided to go to a restaurant in Bayside for lunch. But when they arrived, she didn't leave the chimp in the car. She left the kid in the car. She made a grand entrance into the restaurant, sporting a chimp on her arm. Of course, the chimp was an animal and shouldn't have been in a high-end restaurant. So he started like eating the flowers off the the centerpiece and like flinging around the silverware and like hitting people. So when he began to get out of control, Vicky reached into her purse and pulled out a cattle prod, which she started using on him in public. The electric thing? The electric thing. She's like electrocuting this chimp at a nice restaurant. restaurant. Yeah. Yes. And meanwhile, her child is in the backseat of a limo, like idling out front. So this is the type of mom we're dealing with right now. It's wild. (laughs) Wild. This lady's bonkers. (laughs) She is something else. So as you can imagine, her neighbors in the upscale suburb weren't psyched by her menagerie. And the animals weren't even the only thing that drove them crazy. Vicky had not lost her love for things that go fast, and she had recently taken up racing motorcycles, often riding over other people in Long Island's manicured lawns. So she would just, like, leave tire marks all over their lawns just to piss them off. Yeah, so she, like, hates everyone. She hates everyone, and she loves getting attention, even negative attention. She also horrified, like, the upscale neighbors by smoking, drinking, entertaining young men, and dressing as if she were in her 20s when she was pushing her 40s. They hated that. (laughs) By the time she was 39, she gained a new venture and a new young boy toy. Funded by her husband, Vicky opened up a plant and antique store that she not so creatively called Vicky's Plantique. <laughs> this is like, this is like um, the girl who drank the pine soul. What was her shop called? Yes, it was. Um, that was uh, Charlene, and it was like bobs oh, and bobs or not. Bits and bobs, and it was her uh, macrame and plant store. I can't remember. Things and other things store. <laughs> yes, Vicky's Plantique. Although I do think that you would be very good at running a plant and antique store. For sure. That's pretty much what I run. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much what Riri Koo is. <laughs> So while she's running this place, she also is purchasing a new Harley and she meets a young man who's still in his 20s named Benjamin Matana, who owned the Harley Davidson franchise in Lindbrook, Long Island. He was like real work hard, party hard type of guy, lots of drugs, lots of fun. I mean, he's owned a Harley Davidson franchise. He wasn't like an angel, you know? Yeah. Well, he might have been a hell's angel. He might. <laughs> that's good. That was good. Yeah, he might have been. 
So Vicky was really into him right away. He was like a lot younger than she was. He was a lot edgier. She liked the fact that he always had grease under his fingernails. And by now, Gerald and Vicky were officially separated. And Vicky, who was completely infatuated with Matana, began to hand over all of her like alimony and support and even like share of her house money that they were like working through with the divorce. And the point of it was that like, he was only marginally interested in her and she was like still cute, but she was a lot older than he was. And like the bonus for him was that she was rich and she would give him a ton of money to fix up his own house and buy things for him. And so when she began to run out of money because she was divorcing her husband, he was like, I don't really know if I want to be with you anymore. Fuck off. Mm -hmm. He managed to dupe her out of $19,000 before her cash reserve dried up. So Flanagan didn't say whether that was adjusted for inflation, but I'm guessing not. Um, And because $19,000 is still a lot of money, but adjusted for inflation, that would be like $95,000. Exactly. Exactly. It changes the game a bit. Yeah, absolutely. So she had, like, when she was keeping the money flowing, had had moved in with him, and she thought that they were going to, like, maybe get married. They were going to continue their domestic life. But he was like, hell no. He wanted, like, other younger women. He wanted to party with his friends. She was, like, almost 40. He was, like, 28, 29. Like, she had four kids that were, like, between the ages of, like, 3 and 17, you know? Yeah. So this was, like, not his scene at all. So after 18 months of living together and, you know, over $19,000 spent and Vicky now completely broke, Matana wanted her to leave. He's like, get out of my house. And adding insult to injury, he also told her that he had absolutely no intention of paying her back what she loaned him or compensating her at all for all of the contributions she made to his home during their 18 months together. Ew, what a scumbag. He's such a scumbag. Ugh, don't do that. Don't use people like that. It's gross. So gross. Ugh. So, of course, Vicky was devastated. In her desperation to win him back and using the only language that had ever worked with her young lover, money, she hatched a terrible, terrible scheme. This is from, like, Mother Like Son. In the fall of 1975, Vicky actually plotted to kidnap her own daughter, four-year-old Tony. The plan was that it would call for a 50000 ransom, which she knew her husband could afford. And Matana was like, cool, like, I'll maybe hang out with you longer if you get that $50,000 and give it to me. Ew! Uh-huh, real, this guy's real gross. And she's even grosser for threatening to kidnap her own child to get money from her soon-to-be ex-husband. Oh, so God. The plan never came to fruition as Vicky entered into negotiations with her husband to get a lump sum payment in exchange for her half interest in the Ardito's old Westbury house, which was then valued at $250,000. So she was like, I don't have to kidnap my own daughter. I'm going to get half the house money. Stay with me here. Um, but negotiations were dragging on and on and on. Obviously, this guy had a lot of money. There was a lot at stake. Um, And later, an FBI agent said she didn't have a dime 
um, he's the one who uncovered the scheme to kidnap her daughter. She had to give all of her money to Matana. The money from the kidnapping was to have been used to move Matana's motorcycle dealership from Lindbrook. But a dark seed had been planted in Vicky's head. The idea of a kidnapping. She had always been a gutsy woman and did things few other women or men would dare. Indeed, to her long list of dubious achievements, she would soon be adding kidnapping. Her own daughter would not be the victim, but someone else very dear to her would be. By the spring of 1976, Vicky Ardito was at the end of her rope. Her lover was picking fights with her, telling her to get the hell out of his house, and he still refused to pay her back a dime. Ugh. Vicky decided if Mantana wouldn't love her, he wouldn't love anyone. It was time for Benjamin Mantana to die. Obviously, she couldn't pull this off by herself, so she enlisted three accomplices. Oh, man, I thought you were going to say chimpanzees. (laughs) Oh, my gosh, why didn't that even occur to me? She did have three chimpanzees, too. Also, the book doesn't say what happened to the chimpanzees. Like, what? Are they just roaming the streets? Did she just let them loose? Did she kill them? She probably killed them with that cattle prodder. Oh, even worse. Um, No. She picked three guys who, no offense, guys, probably had the same IQ as the chimps. The first person she turned to was a habitually out-of-work mechanic named Benny Ventimiglia that she had met during her street racing days. Benny was also a martial arts expert who was frequently in the Ardito home to train Jed in karate. Also, there's... No, exactly. So the guy who who read the Audible book was like who also trained Jed in karate. And he said it like that, like every time this totally like white guy who's reading everything completely like normal white guy. And then as soon as he says karate, he goes karate every single time. Well, that is the correct way to pronounce it with Japanese accent. Well, yeah, but it was very (laughs) off-putting. It's like he was really trying very hard. Took me out of the story every time. Maybe he loves Um, Japan as much as I do. Okay, you two can be like karate in every conversation. (laughs) So yeah, so he also trained Jed in karate. And there is a picture in the book of Benny in a Speedo. And I swear to God, he looks like buff Freddie Mercury. Oh, that's what you sent me. That's what I sent you because I didn't want to have to try to hold the book up to Zoom. So look at that picture and tell me I am. I have to go through our 150 texts from today (laughs) to get back to yesterday's photo. He really does look like. Slightly buffer Freddie Mercury. Yeah, he really does. Mm -hmm. And then I sent you a picture of Vicky Ardito too because she looks like an evil who from Whoville in the cringe. (laughs) She really does. Doesn't she? Yeah. Um, We'll put up both of these pictures on the uh, Instagram. So (laughs) she also pulled 24-year-old John Delacona, a young man who had known Vicky since his teens when his father had leased the Sinclair gas station to her. Vicky had been kind of like a bizarre mother figure slash friend hybrid to the young man. Like she's old enough to be his mom. But then when he was only 15, she was supplying cocaine to him, which is not a very motherly thing to do. Oh. No, if your mom gave you cocaine at 15, I'm sorry for you. I am sorry for you. I'm very sorry. I'm sorry for you, yes. 
He later testified that he had been cajoled and coerced into the murder plot with Vicky promising to, quote, take care of him for the rest of his life financially if he participated in the crime. The third person was like actually just a kid. He was a 16-year-old Brooklyn boy named Mario Russo who would supply the gun. On April 27th, 1976, Vicky put into action her plan for the kidnapping, robbing, and murder of Benjamin Matana. The plan was for the three men to stage a kidnapping of Matana and Vicky, giving Vicky an alibi. They would then rob the safe at the motorcycle store, the accomplices keeping whatever was inside, and then disappear Matana from the earth. How or where didn't matter to Vicky as long as he wouldn't be found. So the accomplices were promised $10,000 each plus whatever they could score from the shop. The okay. first snag occurred when Vicky asked her 18-year-old neighbor, James Pape, to run Matana's German Shepherd watchdog down to her plantique shop to get him out of the way for the abduction murder. Unfortunately, oh Vicky, this idiot, forgot to tell her assistant at the plantique shop that she was going to be watching the dog. So when this like kid brought this huge German shepherd down to this antique shop, the assistant at the shop was like, why are you bringing this dog down here? The dog can't stay down here. It's going to break something. So the assistant was like, I don't know what Vicky told you, but like bring the dog back to the house. So the kid like had a key and he walked back into the house to return the German shepherd and the accomplices were already in place, like holding guns. So he was like freaked out, of course, because he saw all these like these three big guys with guns and Vicky was like not there, but they like basically told the kid to stay put and called her and was like, what do we do? Are we going to like kill the kid? And she's like, no, don't kill him. Like, I don't want to kill our neighbor and we're going to get caught if you kill him. And so Benny Ventimiglia apparently threatened him with death if he told anyone, but like, let him go. So they had been- Oh my God, so messy. This is such a mess. So this is amateur hour over here. Um, So they had gone to a friend's house of like a friend of um, Benjamin Matana's to watch a wrestling match. And Vicky and Ben Matana came home after it was finished and they found the accomplices lying in wait. So Benny used some karate moves on the shocked Matana. (laughs) This is from the book, yeah. And then pistol whipped him into submission. So Matana never had a chance with that superior martial arts skill. That karate. That karate. They then took Matana to the shop where they were supremely pissed off to find they only had $1,200 in the safe. Vicky had told the guys that he routinely had $8,000. So all three accomplices were really pissed off at this point because their 10 Gs were not going to come until Vicky's divorce settlement came through. And God knows when that was going to happen because they were like real tied up in litigation. So the safe money was supposed to hold them over until they could get the money. That's why you shouldn't murder people. Yeah, don't murder people for money. Just don't do it. Just don't do it. Don't don't sleep with women that you don't love for money. Don't murder people for money. Don't do anything like gross for money because it'll come back and bite you in the butt. Yeah. Yeah. Benny Ventimiglia was especially hard up because he owed a lot of money to his Coke dealer. Which was dangerous in and of itself, like owing money to a Coke dealer. 
But it's also really bad if you're addicted to cocaine and your dealer cuts it off because you haven't paid him and you're like jonesing, you know? Mm. Yeah. So this was like not a happy situation for anyone that there wasn't enough money in the safe that they've already like have a witness. It's like messy, messy, messy. Yeah. But like if it's $1,200 in the safe split three ways, that's still 400 bucks. That's a lot of coke. Yeah, but if he has a bill that's like a couple grand, yeah, they're not going to give him any more Coke for $400. Maybe the three like criminals can just get together and be like, hey, Benny, you need this more right now. Like you can just have this and then <laughs> you can pay us back. Kumbaya, accomplices, kumbaya. <laughs> I'm sure that's exactly <laughs> what they were like. And then they face off. You're bringing some very realistic scenarios to the table today, Andy. I appreciate it. You're welcome. This is a serious true crime podcast where we solve unsolved crimes. And every episode, Andy's like, well, got to tell you, got to bring up the face-off thing again because it's a real possibility. Just call us Holes and Jensen over here. Um. So, yeah. The accomplices then took Matana to the marshes of Howard Beach, where Benny shot him six times, five in the body and once in the head with a nine millimeter pistol. So he later bragged to his girlfriend, Anna Marie Pugliese, that there had been others there, but that he was the only one with enough cojones to shoot him. Don't brag about it either. Don't brag about killing. Her name sounds like a Tuscany vineyard. Anna Marie Pugliese or Pugliese. I'm not sure which one it is. Um, Meanwhile, Vicky called the police and attempted the acting job of her life. Vicky told the authorities that four thugs had burst into her house and forced Matana to the shop where he was instructed at gunpoint to open the safe with Vicky in tow. Afterwards, they returned to Matana's house where Vicky was dumped and warned to stay quiet or they'd kill him. They threatened her to not call the cops. They took Matana with them and they hadn't returned for several hours, she said, at which point she felt brave enough to call the police despite the threats. The cops naturally searched the crime scene, which was their house. And while one detective, Albert Iannuzzi, was checking out the master bedroom, he found a piece of paper only barely concealed in a plastic bag. It read, important, big plan, kidnapping Wednesday morning. I am not kidding. This is for real. This is the evidence they found. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Um, Vicky created another ridiculous lie to cover up this completely idiotic move. Um, it seems almost inconceivable that Vicky could have left behind such a damning piece of evidence. Ianuzi showed the paper to other detectives at the scene. The first hints that Vicky's story about the abduction might not be true. Vicky was confronted with the evidence right away. The tale that she told about that piece of paper was far from convincing. She denied immediately that the note had anything to do with Matana, Ianuzi later said. She said the note referred to a plan to kidnap her husband's girlfriend, who had been made pregnant by her husband. Incredulous, the police asked Vicky to go on. She explained that she had been separated from Gerald Ardito and that they were not having an easy divorce. They were fighting over money and trying to get as much dirt on one another as they could. 
he had even hired a private detective, a woman, and then he had had an affair with her and made her pregnant, yet he was suing Vicky for divorce on grounds of adultery. But Vicky told me she had an idea of how she could counter her husband's suit, said Ian Uzi. She told me that if she got the girl kidnapped and got her to talk to Gerald Ardito on the phone, she'd get him to admit that it was his baby. Then Vicky would have him where she wanted him. The detectives looked at one another. Even if everything Vicky had told them was true, which was hard to believe, what kind of woman did they have on their hands who would plan to kidnap someone to get leverage in a divorce? So basically her defense was, no, 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 no. You see, that was a plan to kidnap someone else, which does not seem like a very good way to get out of being charged for kidnapping. Oh my God. Yeah, not a brain trust, this one. So immediately the press went wild for this story. A millionaire's estranged wife who loved street racing, motorcycles, chimpanzees, and her younger lover more than her kids. Embroiled in a kidnapping and murder plot. It was too bizarre to be true. And of course, there was also the mystery of where Benjamin Matana was. No body was discovered, so the authorities and press didn't know whether he was dead or alive or potentially still being held or tortured by his kidnappers. Wow. Yeah, so they're like, what the hell is going on with this case? With this the woman. Me- with this <laughs> woman, we have to know more about this crazy woman that looks like a who. So the media seized on the crime story du jour, and they began calling the kidnapping the motorcycle mama murder case. Oh, My God. (laughs) Meanwhile, the cops traced phone calls made from Matana's house the night of the abduction and discovered calls to not one, but two of Benny Ventimiglia's girlfriends, Anna Marie Pugliese and Ivy Furness, as well as a Brooklyn pizzeria owned by Mario Russo's father, where he also worked as a counter boy. Oh, he should have stayed just working at the, the pizzeria for his dad. The cops yep. were having zero problems connecting the dots and they all led back to Vicky Ardito being the ringleader because of course she knew both of these men socially. Yeah. On May 26th, the robbery kidnapping officially became a murder case when Matana's badly decomposed body was discovered in a lot in Howard Beach. Anna Marie Pugliese, who had grown angry with Ventimiglia for dating other women and refusing to marry her, reported to the cops that not only did Benny shoot Matana, but she'd also heard him mention staying away from Howard Beach on phone calls and suggested they look for the body there. (laughs) I can't do the accent, but like... That was really good. I love the idea that she's like, he won't marry me. So anyway, here's what he said about where the body is. (laughs) Jesse, that's really good. Thank you. Hell hath no fury like an Italian woman scorned, huh? Literally. (laughs) So all of these mofos were caught as hell. Um, 24-year-old John Delacona took a deal and he turned on Vicky, Benny, and Mario. All three defendants. Yeah, absolutely. All three defendants were charged with first-degree conspiracy, felony murder, kidnapping, and robbery. 
Furthermore, phone records had proven that Vicky had called Matana's house several times the night of the murder to make sure the men were in place. And she had tried to say that she was just calling to check in on the German shepherd that James mm-hmm. Pape was dog sitting at their house. And James Pape was like, Mm-mm, no way. I wasn't at that house since I dropped off the dog. And I did not talk to that bitch, except for when I was almost killed by her accomplices. Mm-hmm. So he's like, what are you, what are you even, why would you even say that I'm going to help you out with an alibi when I saw them at your house? So trial was not looking good for our defendants and neither was old Vicky at this point. As the trial progressed, she became lean, haggard, disoriented. Her behavior became anxious, addled, and erratic. The judge and prosecutor suspected that she was faking a mental breakdown as the trial wrapped up to avoid prosecution. But eventually she became so catatonic that Vicky's lawyers begged that she be committed for long-term psychiatric care. The judge declared a mistrial just for just for Vicky, not for the other two defendants, and okay. ordered her sent to the Mid-Hudson Psychiatric Center near Poughkeepsie. She was supposed to remain there for just one year, and then when she was determined mentally well enough, she would go through a new murder trial just by herself. Okay. So John Delacona ended up serving like pretty much nothing. He went to a rehab clinic for heroin addiction and eventually was cleared of all of his charges for his cooperation with the prosecutor. Okay. Mario Russo, who was only a kid of 16 years old, who had provided the gun but not pulled the trigger, received 20 years to life. Ooh. Yikes. Crime does not pay. Um, Sebastian Benny Ventimiglia, the shooter, received 25 years to life for the slaying. So I'm not sure about Russo, about how much time he actually served, because A, Maria, Mario, I keep saying, Mario Russo is a very common name. Um, so it was hard to find out out information about him, but he was also, um, technically a minor when he went away. So I don't know how much time he ended up serving. Got it. Um, but Benny stayed very busy in jail. He even penned an exercise book and he wrote an article for prison life magazine called training in the hole about how to achieve strength training results without weights. So he was like the, the personal trainer to the entire prison. A New New York Times article about another inmate referenced him in the 2000s, and it appeared Benny had gotten out after serving 37 years. By then, he was like in his late 50s or early 60s. Oh, that's such a long time for a stupid thing you did for somebody else. I know. Oh, just don't murder. Don't murder people. Don't murder somebody else's problem. What about our head haunch? Okay, so... That's the accomplices. What about Vicky? And what about her equally murderous son, Jed? Yep. Vicky spent six years at Mid-Hudson Psychiatric avoiding a murder trial. During her time there, she was diagnosed with agitated depression, hysterical neurosis, manic depression, and schizophrenia. She was eventually transferred to South Beach Psychiatric Center on Staten Island, which was a huge coup for her because the campus was kind of like more like a college than a prison, which would make sense because out of the 310 person population at the center, only 20 of those people were criminals. So it really was just like any other normal like mental institution, you know? Okay. 
Between November 1981 and September 1982, she was even allowed several 40-hour passes so she could go home and visit her family for long weekends. So she is, like, not getting punished at this point. No, at all. Unfo- not even, like, a little bit. Yeah. Unfortunately for Vicky, her sweet setup was ruined in June of 1983 when a judge declared her fit to stand trial. In response, Vicky went out for a walk to get some air and just kept walking. That's right. Just like our friend Harry Thaw, she literally just walked out of the psychiatric hospital and disappeared. Stop. Yeah, only they didn't find her as fast as they found Harry Thaw. Suffolk County authorities were furious with the psychiatric center because they were just bringing her back to trial and now she's gone. She remained on the lam for nine whole months before they tracked her down. (laughs) She was like in the wind for nine months and they couldn't find her. And then they finally tracked her down in Tampa, Florida, where your mom lives. Yep. And that's also where Vicky's mother lived. Um, And Vicky had cut her hair short, dyed it red, and she began working as like a house cleaner and a babysitter to make ends meet. Wow. Yeah. So they kind of like obviously looked into her family and eventually found her. So she was hauled back to New York where she would face trial on October 30th, 1984. Vicky was offered a plea deal for 18 years behind bars. Why? I think that they were just tired of dealing with her. And I also think that she had spent so much time in psychiatric hospitals. There was a very real chance that somebody could get her off with like a mentally unstable, you know, uh, defense. So, yeah, she did want to try her chances at court. Because her attorneys felt like there was a good chance that she would probably just be remanded back to a psychiatric hospital. Yep. And obviously, she was good at living that way and she would avoid hard time. But then her eldest daughter, Dina, was arrested for dealing cocaine. And the authorities suggested that they would go easy on Dina if Vicky would just accept the plea to the jail time. So Vicky had never been much of a mother to her kids. And she thought that if she took the plea and saved Dina from serving time in jail, like that was her being a good mom. It's actually really thoughtful. It is really thoughtful. So she took the plea to save her daughter. And she had to admit in an open court that she set up the hit and she admitted that she did everything. Um, And she was officially sentenced to 18 years in Bedford Hills Correctional Facility in Westchester, New York, which some of our like big famous cases have ended up with women in Bedford Hills like uh, Pamela Smart. Oh, really? Yep. In her short time at the women's prison, she seemed to be a popular inmate befriending another woman we might cover sometime. Um, This woman was called Jean Harris, and she was like a very highfalutin blue blood private school mistress who murdered Dr. Herman Tarnauer, a cardiologist who wrote the best-selling Scarsdale medical diet book, which I think was actually kind of like Scarsdale was very ahead of its time. It was like a 1970s Atkins. It was very like high protein. That's what I was going to ask you. Yeah. Yeah. High protein, low carb. Vicky vigorously appealed her conviction until she was diagnosed with late stage lung cancer. 
On August 26, 1987, she was transferred to a hospice center in the Bronx. And less than a month later, on September 14, 1987, Frances Victoria Ardito passed away. All right. So we are at the end of Vicky's wild ride. Whoa. So Jed had very little to do with his mother during her years of psychiatric holds, escape, prison stays, her own personal journey here. In 1977, his father pulled some strings to get him accepted at Fordham, which was, you know, his dad's alma mater. It proved a very ill fit for the poor student, and he eventually dropped out. A mentor had taken the troubled kid under his wing, as this was around the same period, like right after Vicky's public trial. And his mentor suggested that he apply to Sarah Lawrence College. The college had recently gone co-ed and had relaxed admission standards to attract more male students. Uh, yeah, I'm like, do they have to really try that hard to attract male students to an all-girls school? <laughs> Apparently, a lot of these highfalutin guys didn't want to, like, go to a girls' school or whatever yeah, in the I 70s. Yeah, I Okay. Mm -hmm. Dumb. So, yeah, in the late 70s, Sarah Lawrence had a relaxed approach to grading and, of course, an overwhelmingly female population, which made it the perfect fit for the ladies' man underachiever. Upon graduation, Jed found himself in sales, and it was a natural fit for a tall, good-looking youth with an affable nature. He's a bullshitter, you know? Yeah. He's a good bullshitter. He impressed an employment agency owner right out of school and ended up building his career selling temp and employment services to major corporations and law firms. By 1985, he was enjoying a goodly amount of success and decided the next logical move was to acquire a beautiful wife. Naturally. Naturally. When you have everything, you need to also get a beautiful trophy wife. Despite his playboy ways, he married his first wife, Heather Hughes, a charismatic dancer, in July of 1985 on the grounds of his alma mater, Sarah Lawrence, in Bronxville, New York. To narcissistic Jed, it seemed only fitting to launch his married life at the same place he had found his real success. Jesus. Ugh. <laughs> so gross. Gerald Ardito was not invited to his son's wedding, and Vicky was, of course, by then in prison. So he didn't have his parents at his wedding. Jed's career continued to soar as he partnered with his mentor and boss, whom we've mentioned, Eric Goldstein, to start his own temp agency. But as good as a salesman as he might have been, he was a truly terrible, domineering, unfaithful husband. In 1989, the temp agency hired sweet and beautiful 19-year-old Marie Danielle, and the rest is tragic history. Then, of course, like I said, after proposing to Marie on her 22nd birthday and his fifth wedding anniversary, he famously cheated on her and subsequently married Petra, his second wife. Here's what the marriage was like, according to Petra, from like mother, like son. Back in New York City, after the fairy tale wedding, Jed no longer played the role of the handsome, strong protector. He began to tell Petra of his past, things about his mother, things about Marie. Petra was bewildered. Just as Jed had changed soon after becoming engaged to Marie, he had become a different man once he married Petra. She wanted to rely on him. Instead, Jed unloaded a host of frightening problems on her, which she was unable to fathom. Her prince turned into a frog. I felt like I was Jed's social worker or counselor, she said. Thoughts of his mother haunted him. For the first time ever, Jed told Petra the whole truth about her. Before then, he had only told her that she spent a lot of time in psychiatric <sighs> hospitals. He had never told her why. It was only after the marriage that Petra discovered she had married the son of a killer. 
He said that if he could love me, he would have to kill his mother in his mind, Petra said. He loved his mother very much, but he hated her also. Yikes. Jed told her stories about Vicky, which she found very chilling. I'm so sorry for this image. This image haunts me. He said he even had to physically fight with chimpanzees. <laughs> Because they were jealous of his relationship with his mother. Can you imagine coming down for breakfast and there's like three chimpanzees like mean mugging you at the breakfast table and you're like, come on, let's rumble. Shit is crazy. I mean, I I know that that must have been very traumatic, but... She's talking about how terrible his childhood. He's like, he had to fight chimpanzees. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I mean, I don't... It's hard to feel bad for this guy because he killed his girlfriend. So I don't know how bad I feel about the chimpanzees. Yeah, I, yeah I don't. Yes. So Petra also discovered that Jed couldn't stand to be alone. He used to say, when I am by myself, the devils are coming. I am not rational like you are. I am sometimes irrational. When I am by myself, I see red in my head. Worst of all, Petra found out Marie was still very much in his heart and mind. He talked about her all the time and about how she had hurt him. I believe the stories that he told me that Marie was very demanding and mean to him, said Petra. When he was lying, he was a very good liar. He believed 100% of what he was lying about. Yeah. It's also just weird, too, if you marry a dude and he talks about his ex all the time. Yeah. Petra said that Jed talked incessantly about Marie. There was something between him and Marie that he could not break, something very fatal. He was desperate and couldn't get away from her. She learned that Jed was seeing Marie again and had started to do so within days of their wedding. No wonder the magic had gone out of their marriage so quickly. And (laughs) she was a recovering bulimic. So she ended up like this whole situation made her eating disorder come back. But Petra tried to convince herself that she could still save their marriage and that Jed would eventually get over Marie. She said that she loved him very much and she kept trying, but he kept on talking about Marie and about how mean she was to him and he would get angry and Petra began to fear him. There were occasions when I was really, really afraid, she said. Then one day he said something that frightened Petra so much she had to leave him. He said, Marie was so mean to me. I fear that one day I will kill her and then you will be the only one to come to visit me in prison like I did my mother. Wow. That's too much. That's like when you're like, maybe I shouldn't have gotten married so fast. Yeah. Stunned and frightened, Petra immediately left Jed and moved into a separate apartment. As much as she loved him, how could she live with someone so troubled? But the marriage was so fresh. Could she give up so quickly? But one day, not long afterwards, Jed called her and he, you know, promised up and down that things would be different. Petra, I really love you. I want you to come back. I'm going to end my relationship with Marie, blah, blah, blah. And so she said she tried to give him another shot and she had a good feeling for a couple of days, but it didn't last. It was clear to Petra that Jed would not stop seeing Marie. One night after dinner, when Petra said she would have to leave him, Jed pleaded with her to stay because he could not bear to be alone. Petra told Jed that she had tried to work hard on their marriage, but she was going back to her parents in Austria. He stood up with a crazy look in his eyes and he said, I think you should leave. He said, you are as mean as the other woman. 
Petra packed her bags for Vienna and left within hours. Good girl. I know. Petra got out. She was 30 pounds lighter than her normal weight. Upon arrival, she checked into a hospital for treatment for her bulimia and stayed two whole months. And then she tried to put Jed and the whole horror of the marriage out of her head. She would not hear again from Jed or about him for two years when she would learn that he strangled Marie in the Grand Hyatt Hotel. She said that she was not at all surprised. I knew that he would someday kill her. Wow. Yikes. That's like an episode of who the fuck did I marry? Yep. Oh. So unfortunately, that's exactly what he did. It's clear he was always obsessed with Marie and he was never going to let her go. Whoa. She was also just like so young when they got together that I feel like when I think back to like my late teens and early 20s, I'm like, you can very easily confuse the ups and downs of a toxic relationship for passion. Of course. Yeah. And love and excitement. You know, you think that like maybe this is the way love is supposed to be because you hear these songs that are like love hurts, you know? Yeah. Oh, it's just to our listeners out there. That is not how love is supposed to be. No. No, it's not supposed to hurt you and it's not supposed to be a roller coaster and nobody's supposed to withhold affection or cheat on you or make you feel like you're going crazy. It should be like a warm, gooey pudding of happiness. (laughs) Oh my God. The least complicated way I can put it. So Jed was 35 years old when the murder trial began on November 1st, 1994. His defense claimed that he had no intention of killing her at all. It was a romantic date as evidenced by the pearl bracelet gift and the consumed lunch. And after the lunch, they had partaken in some kinky sex, which caused an unfortunate accident. But an accident. That he never reported. That he never reported. But they were like, would he have left like his briefcase with all that information if he had meant to kill her? He wasn't even trying to cover it up, you know? So the prosecution said, bullshit, the gifts and lunch were meant to woo her and convince Marie to marry Jed. But when she refused, he flew into a rage and killed her, which seems very logical. (laughs) Not only did Marie's best friend testify that she was planning on breaking up with Jed on that very day, Jed obviously had a history of abusing Marie, especially strangling her like he did on February 18th, only, only two months before the murder. The prosecution, though, was dealt a blow when the judge ruled the 911 tape in which you could hear Marie screaming for her life in the background inadmissible and it would not be allowed to be played in court. Wow. Judge Weisberg said that he found the tapes, quote, ambiguous. And though the deceased was hysterical and fearful, there is no indication from the tape that she believed the defendant was trying to kill her, he went on, saying, you're going to lose your goddamn mind about this. While battered women frequently refuse to file complaints against abusers, the fact that Ms. Danielle soon after resumed her relationship with the defendant is strong evidence that she did not believe he intended to murder her. How old is this guy and how white is this guy? Oh, the whitest. I don't know how old he was, but obviously the whitest. The media had heard the tapes with their own ears in the courtroom and could not understand the judge's ruling. 
Andrea Pazar, a star columnist for the New York Post, went for Weisberg's jugular, which I think is due. In her column of July 19th, 1994, she wrote, if O.J. Simpson faced trial in New York, he would barely need a defense at all because some zany and brainless judge likely would do all the work to get him off the hook and for free. A case in point is Justice Franklin Weisberg. Remember that name because it's the guy you want presiding over your trial if you happen to be a guy who killed the woman you claim to love. Okay, I love her. Love her. This would not be an easy trial for anyone, not for the judge who was now in the spotlight fairly as a sexist, not for the prosecution, which had lost its best evidence of prior abuse. The tapes were chilling. A voice from the grave crying for help, but they were not allowed in. So fucked. So infuriating. So remember there was that like trace bit of white mucus in Marie's vaginal canal? So the defense really focused on this as evidence that there was some sort of sex-related activity and vaginal secretion, despite no other evidence of consensual sex whatsoever. Well, the prosecution offered witnesses that completely tore this to shreds. First, Marie's gynecologist testified that only a couple weeks before the murder, Marie had gone to her complaining of a yeast-like substance. Mm-hmm. The medical examiner followed that up by confirming that the mucus was consistent with a yeast infection as it was white and that vaginal secretions are colorless. Yeah. So bad, bad way to go, defense. Also, kind of riding on the theory that they were having sexy, kinky sex. Who the hell wants to have sex when you have a yeast infection? Yeah, no one. No one. So the prosecution finished their closing statements by holding two full minutes of silence. The exact amount of time the medical examiner believed Marie had been strangled before she died. Whoa. The jury was visibly uncomfortable. Everyone in the courtroom realized that two full minutes is way too long to not realize you're killing someone. Yeah. Yeah. It just seemed impossible that he wouldn't have known what he was doing. At the conclusion of the trial, the judge asked the jury to consider four options for conviction. Number one, murder in the second degree, which would mean that the jury believed that Jed had killed Marie with the intent of causing her death. Two, manslaughter in the first degree, meaning he had acted with intent to cause injury and it resulted in death. Okay. Three, manslaughter in the second degree, which means that he recklessly caused the death of another aware that there was some risk of death. Or four, he was criminally negligent of the homicide, meaning that would mean that the jury actually would have to believe that he hadn't meant any harm, like he hadn't meant to injure her at all. Um, But through the accident, he did accidentally kill her. So he was still criminally negligent in what resulted in her death. Yeah. So no one, including his lawyers, thought that he would be acquitted of all charges, obviously. They were going for like the last one because it only carried a couple years. The jury only deliberated for a few hours. When they returned, they were asked their verdict first on the heaviest, you know, verdict, the murder in the second degree. And the jury foreman read not guilty. So the Danielle family, like, all burst into tears. They started screaming. They started yelling. 
one family member yelled, you should rot in hell, you will have your day. So the judge finally restored order. He asked the jury the verdict on the second charge, first degree manslaughter. And this time, the jury delivered a guilty verdict. Okay. Yeah. So how so long is that in jail? The normal sentence for first degree murder, first degree manslaughter at this time was eight and a half to 25 years. Okay. So on December 12th, 1994, Judge Weisberg told Jed Ardita with contempt that his actions were cold, calculating, and utterly devoid of remorse. He sentenced Jed to the normal term of eight and a half to 25 years with the strong recommendation that Jed not be offered parole and that he would have to serve the max sentence of 25 years, which would potentially mean Jed would be in prison until he was 60 years old. Okay. The Danielle family were relieved that Jed had received at least the max sentence and they very much hoped he would die in prison. A life for a life is what Marie's father said. Yeah. I mean, old school Italian, like. Yeah. Yeah. He wants to find, he wants to get his daughter's killer dead, you know? Yeah. 25 years would have been 2018. So of course I was wildly curious what happened to this dirt bag because the book just ends there. They don't even say where he like went to prison. Whoa. Like there's no follow-up. This was published in the nineties. So it was like, that's the story. I like Googled everything. I could not find anything about him. I couldn't even figure out where he was sentenced to, like where he went to prison. Luckily, Andy, your high school friend, Jackie, who I'm going to shout out and also now name as our love murder chief investigator. Yes, that's awesome. (laughs) Yeah, she was so helpful. Um, I reached out to her on Instagram and because I knew there was like another case where I didn't know where somebody ended up. And she remembers she messaged us and told yep. us. Yeah. And so, yeah. So I reached out to Jackie and I was like, hey, can you dig up anything on this guy? Um, which, by the way, Nathaniel told me was a really bad idea <laughs> to try to find information on a convicted killer that might be out and then dox him by being like, I found him, guys. And here's where he is. So I'm not telling you every detail, but Jackie, who is awesome, did find out where he is right now. And he is out. He's still alive. Um, He claims to be the vice president of a fashion company based in New York, New York. Not going to say which, and I'm not going to say what name he goes by because it's not Jed Ardito anymore. Um, Oh my God. Yep. So watch out, ladies of the tri-state area, because it looks like he is still out there. I have to say, the dudes who work in, like, the fashion industry are always such fucking... It's also, like, didn't look like a real company. It was, like, a fashion company, you know? Oh, my God. (laughs) Like, it wasn't, like, I'm not, like, not saying it. It was, like, vice president at fashion company. You know. At fashion.com. Yes, exactly. It was like one of those situations. Also, he is like clearly catfishing people because I know for a fact he has to be like 63 by now or something. And he's using pictures from like Max, his late 40s. From prison? Uh, well, I don't know when he got out. My best bet is I think he got out in like 10 years or something. Wow. The Danielle's yeah. have to be so mad. So mad because these pictures look very 90s well I guess it would have been early 2000s 
Yeah. If he got out in like 10 years. Um, but they look very old school. And they like it definitely like Jackie and I were laughing about it because they look like like men's warehouse shots from like the early 2000s. Whoa. Yeah. But it's definitely him. So he's a creeper and he's he's out there and hopefully he doesn't listen to this podcast and kill me. <laughs> So that is the case of the dual generational murderous Arditos, two people that apparently couldn't handle rejection and would have benefited from loads of therapy. <laughs> In conclusion, maybe you shouldn't force your children into a gladiator battle with chimpanzees every day of their life, or they might turn out to be killers. Breakfast table chimpanzee fight doesn't sound. It doesn't sound like a good childhood to me. It might it might have some repercussions later on. Uh, also, just don't piss off an Italian woman. Like, <laughs> oh, no, definitely not. Especially when she knows where the bodies are literally buried. <laughs> yeah, your skeletons in the closet. Not uh, smart. Uh. And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love, so no one ends up murdered stay safe everybody thanks for listening stay away from fashion.com <laughs> bye